You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, I am Dr. Carrie Beating of the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two fantabulous colleagues, Dr. Abby Edlin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. How you doing? We're good. We're good. Yeah. What's busy. up? What are the, what are the hot um, activities that you two have been going to lately? I've been going to weddings. Like this really? is, I guess, my my like my new wedding season to be like I haven't been to weddings for years. And now like I have all these people that are having weddings again. So So is October like a good wedding season in Texas because it's cooled down a little bit or I since we're in the I month of October? It, it's some of it tends to be a little cooler. Um one of the weddings was actually in I mean, it was a Texas family, but they were they got married in Cabo. I think it's just one of those like it's before the holidays, but it's outside the middle of summer and yeah. a little less um, unpredictable than spring is with rain and everything's yeah. outside nowadays. You know, everybody gets married outside. Yeah. So did you go to Cabo then? We did. We went to Cabo. Ooh, I guess it was, I didn't we, know had, that. we had a wedding and then my the next weekend was my med school reunion. And then we had another wedding this weekend. So were they all first weddings or second weddings or what were they? So the First wedding I went to was a first and second. So okay. one of them had been married before and one of them hadn't. And then the wedding I had this weekend was a second marriage for both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting because I think I think COVID has kind of started a new trend when it has weddings where people are tending to go and get married like a JP or something like that. And then they have a wedding celebration at some other time that's maybe a little more convenient or, you know, just works better and that type of thing. That's that's what both of these were. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So were they was it like a regular ceremony? Like for even for oh, the, yeah, woman the whole shebang. Been... The whole shebang. Really? Yeah. The whole shebang. Music and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Like music, dancing, dinner, you know. How long have they been married? Um, one got married in February and one got married sometime earlier in the summer, I think. Oh, okay. So this year then. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. Okay. As hot as Texas was this year, like, oh, I would have hated to do an outside wedding in the middle of the summer. That would have yeah. just been a scorcher. You know, I would still, even if I, I'm about to be married for 25 years, so I'm not planning on having another wedding. But if I did... Outdoor weddings are beautiful if the weather's good and it's nice, but oh gosh, I would be a nervous wreck if I were the bride trying you to have be- contingencies. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah, you have to. But the contingencies usually are never as good as the, like if you had to pitch a tent and that wouldn't be nearly as good as having an outdoor. So I'd be a little nervous even now planning that. Yeah, I I would agree with that. We just went to an outdoor wedding that was all Southern 
like Southwestern in terms of cowboy hats and jeans. And it was beautiful, but we really got lucky because earlier in the day, it was miserably hot and it cooled down right at the right time. So oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Timing is everything. Mm, huge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it is time for questions. What you got, Susan? All right. My first one is um, 42. Um, history couldn't get pregnant, went to a fertility clinic. I had a DNC for endometriosis, immediately got pregnant without assistance, miscarried, six months, got pregnant again, naturally full term, delivered in February 2020, and the baby died at three hours old of pneumonia. Oh, um, oh, awful. She was really sick the month before and wondered oh. if COVID had happened in that type of thing. Tried for three months with the assistance of medicines like Minipure, um, Avadrol, Letrozole, miscarried and had two more rounds of nothing. Moved on to IVF clinic, but they um, don't implant mosaics. So they are just skipping um, genetic testing. Um, and they also suggest four to six weeks of human growth hormone. They said four weeks is fine, but read six to eight weeks. So they pushed back for one more um, month of HGH. Was this the right choice regarding HGH? Um, they, they, she really wants to know, like, what, what are our thoughts on HGH and for this time period? So she's 42 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that the data is really there to say a certain length of time. I mean, I do think there's certain patients that benefit from it, but I don't usually do it for that length of time. I'd be interested to hear what you guys do. I I would use it in a 42-year-old, but I do it during stimulation. Yeah, I don't me do too. it beforehand. And that's a huge financial commitment. I that's mean, That's a big hit financially. One vial of, of growth hormone lasts four doses the way we typically do it. And I think each vial is probably six to 800. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm guessing. And so that's that's a huge financial commitment. And like, that's a long time. That's a yeah. long time. I mean, when I use growth hormone, I do do it for the four to six weeks ahead of time because there was a paper that we that in looking at it, that kind of showed the optimal time because the eggs are really chosen prior to prior to the two weeks that we see them grow. Like they've they've started to emerge earlier. So we typically use it for four to six weeks, mm-hmm. but I'm also pretty sparing and I tell them straight up, look, the data is very mixed. Mm-hmm. There are studies that support it and there are studies that say it doesn't make a difference. The main thing that we've seen is that it gets you, I think it's an additional one to two mature eggs, but there's no differences in ultimate live birth outcomes. And mm-hmm. so I'm I'm very sparing when I use it because it is so expensive and the data is kind of questionable. I think there probably is a population that might benefit, but we just don't know exactly who it is. and. So it's a, like, I don't know that it would hurt, but, um, but it's expensive for something that may not help. Yeah. And she may have coverage. There are some, some groups that will cover it. The other question, mm-hmm. other thing she mentioned was a mosaic embryo. Did she, did she say she had one mosaic embryo or? No, it sounds like the clinic she's at will not transfer mosaic. So they're just not doing PGT testing because yeah. they don't want to deal with having a mosaic and then their clinic not be willing to transfer it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, makes sense. Yeah. It'll, I'd rather save the money if they're going to transfer anyway, save the money on PGT, spend it on the growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. One more question. Good question. Yeah. 
All right. Hello. Love the podcast. I'm 28 and husband's 29. We did a retrieval when I was 26 and ended up with 13 embryos. We didn't PGT test at first and had three failed transfers. We ended up getting PGT testing on the remaining embryos and still had a failed transfer with the PGT normal embryo, making it four total transfers without implantation. I've had a normal HSG, hysteroscopy, and receptive ERA. We only have mild male factor and haven't found any other issues. I still have four PGT normal embryos. I'm curious if there's anything else I should try first. I'm concerned that I've never had even an implantation. Thank you, ladies. We'll definitely do the RPL panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See if there's, if there's anything going on there with the antibodies that we check, you know, thyroid, glucose, diabetes, prolactin, all of the basics, infection, sounds like hysteroscopy and ERA. They've, they've kind of done all of the standard things, but this in part goes back to the philosophy that people have with miscarriages of keep trying. You'll, there's a decent chance you're going to get there. It's just, can you emotionally hold out long enough to get there? And it's hard because you've already been through four transfers, but I mean, it is possible those first three were abnormal and because we've Mm -hmm. seen, we've seen those profiles when, you know, we have somebody with 13 embryos and nine of them are abnormal. I mean, you still have four more. So you had five normal and Mm -hmm. another four. And so, you know, it's possible that that happened. I would, I would be more worried if you had been through two um, chromosomally normal embryo transfers, but I would definitely do the RPL panel. I'd check for chronic endometritis, um, that type of thing. We tend to, in this situation, probably add some steroids to your protocol. I would do a BCL6 biopsy and maybe even scope you for endometriosis, depending on if you have symptoms related to endometriosis. I would think about doing that. And that kind of leads into our topic today. At some point, and I agree with Susan, you've only had one genetically normal embryo that we know for sure is genetically normal, although statistically, at least one of those failed transfers probably was a normal embryo, but you know, we don't know for that for sure. If you'd had, I would say, and, and this is actually something we may want to talk about in our in our discussion later on, but at some point when we continue to put normal embryos in somebody and no matter what we do, they keep miscarrying, at some point, I sort of feel like there's something there that we don't have a test for that's not working out correctly. And maybe it's time to think about using a gestational carrier. Mm-hmm. So let's let's switch into that topic, seeing as we've kind of dovetailed into that and we'll just mm-hmm. dive right in. So gestational carriers, the shorthand for that is GCs. Um, what do you guys look for in, in a GC from the medical perspective? Before we dive into that, I'd like to define the difference in what a traditional mm-hmm. surrogate versus a gestational carrier is, because I think there is some confusion, confusion. on that terminology. Yeah. Um, and so I'll kind of dive into it. So um, a gestational carrier is essentially a woman who is carrying a pregnancy that is not from her eggs and obviously not her sperm. <laughs> <laughs> There's no genetic relationship between the woman carrying the pregnancy and the baby. Exactly, exactly. And But a traditional surrogate is where the woman carrying the pregnancy has been the source of the egg with sperm added into the mix. And so those, those things mean very different things. There are lots of clinics out there who um, work with gestational carriers that don't work with traditional surrogacy. Do any of y'all 
your clinics do traditional surrogacy. We don't at TFC. It's illegal in Nevada. I don't know many, yeah, I don't think many people. When I was early in fellowship, there was somebody in our town that did it, but we didn't do it. And one point about traditional surrogacy is the egg comes from the woman, the sperm comes from the husband or the partner of the other woman. And the idea is when she delivers the baby, she'll give that baby to the the, the, of the second couple, basically. She's carrying the pregnancy, but it's also her egg, but she's going to give the baby up. Yeah, so it's just good to understand that there's a there's a big 2020 thing that was out a couple years ago. I'm sure it's on YouTube or something that you can watch. And they were describing kind of how different family members and people can react to surrogacy, encompassing all of that, and essentially compared these two situations meaning for them to be comparing very similar things. But to me, they're comparing apples to oranges. And so um, just something important to lay out there. As a part of that, part of the reason why traditional surrogacy is very rarely done these days is because it can get you into legal hot water because that the woman who donated the egg and who's carrying the pregnancy has a very solid legal ground to say, this is my baby and change her mind partway through. And so one of the things when you're looking for a GC is that you need to be aware of the state that she lives in and what those laws are. So for example, I just had a woman come to me who had cancer and her cousin had offered to do traditional surrogacy for her. They would do it by IVF. So there would be no doubt about what the intent was, but it would still be her egg and her carrying the pregnancy for her cousin who had cancer. And when we looked at both the laws in Nevada and Oklahoma, where this cousin was from, um, it was really unfavorable in both places to do it because it just it's not not permitted. So it's really important to see where this the potential GC lives and talk with the legal team that you're working with because you will be working with a legal team. Somebody needs to represent both her and you as parents and make sure that separate the entities, laws, multiple separate attorneys entities, evolved. You can't have yeah. the same attorney. And they need to be specifically trained in this part of uh, reproductive law because this is not family law here. This mm-hmm. is a very, very specific <laughs> set of rules that you need to know the ins and outs. And this is not where you go, oh yeah, my you know my cousin Joe is a lawyer. Like this, You don't do that in this case. He stayed in a Motel 6 and so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So besides where the GC lives, what do you look for in terms of age, in terms of some of the basic characteristics for this this person? So I mean, age, you want a really young person. You want somebody young, but I will also say there's... And honestly, I I don't know exactly what ASRM says about the age, but typically you want somebody young and ideally somebody that's had a baby before, because the best guess of how she's going to do with the second pregnancy is how she did with the previous pregnancy. So I think age is an important thing and experience in pregnancy is an important thing. Um, Susan, why don't you name some things too? Well, kind of to expand on that a little bit. So I do think that there are, when you're looking at using a GC through an agency versus using a GC as somebody known to you, we do tend to be a little more lenient um, on certain things if it's not through an agency. I mean, if it was through an agency, I definitely... Ideally, I'd like them to be less than 35. I would probably be okay up into the upper 30s. Um, if you what have would your lower limit be out of curiosity? Lower limit? I think it's 21 in Texas. It's 21 by ASRM guidelines. It's 21 mm-hmm. to 45 by ASRM. Yeah. 
So once you get somebody who's in their 40s, you know, you're you are having definitely increased risks of things like diabetes and pregnancy, preeclampsia, preterm delivery, just because the body isn't as young as it used to be, even in proven GCs. So a lot of these rules are are things that are guidelines and it's looking at the big picture in, in the particular situation. But the younger person you have, the less complications are likely to happen. Um, I would also like to have somebody whose weight is in a normal range um, because again, those things are tied to pregnancy complications. And you know, this is this is the life of your your baby and the life of the gestational carrier that we're we're dealing with. Um one thing I like to point out to intended parents is you're 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 not just hiring a body. You're you're hiring a person, a person who is usually a mother, um, oftentimes somebody who is a partner. You know, this is this is this is a very important thing to make sure we're all safe and we're all wise during this process. Um, and so, you know, having somebody who does not have significant weight issues is going to improve your prognosis. I think there's also some things that you don't want in your gestational carrier. It's great if she's carried a pregnancy or two and she's done well, but if it's somebody that's had four or five pregnancies, you start to worry more about things like postpartum hemorrhages and things like that that could be threatening to the gestational carrier. Um, The other thing that I'm not real wild about either is if she's had multiple C-sections, like three or four C-sections, we worry that that lower uterine segment hasn't healed very well, and it just may make it more likely for her to have a uterine rupture during pregnancy. So things that put her health at risk as well are things that we we don't like to see in gestational carriers. She pretty much has to have had at least one pregnancy before. Uh, most people will not approve someone who hasn't had at least one pregnancy for multiple reasons, partly because you don't know how her body is going to respond to pregnancy. But also because mentally, you don't know how she will respond to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You don't want to find out for the first time that someone has hyperemesis, meaning they're nauseated and they vomit all through the first trimester, sometimes all through the entire pregnancy. Um, And they they had no idea it was going to be this bad and feel this bad. And so they want to terminate. Um, Or they get to delivery and they realize, hey, I, I really like this baby. I don't want to give it up. And so someone who's been through pregnancy before, that is, uh, that's part of what they screen when they do the psychological evaluation um, is, hey, do you think you can give up this baby? And, and they typically don't take someone who hasn't carried a baby before because it's a much different experience to give up a baby. Not that it's giving up, but give back a baby when mm-hmm. you have never carried a pregnancy before and you don't really know what you're about to go through. So one thing to know, and you kind of mentioned this uh, just a little bit before, is a psychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. Know that our national society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, recommends that all individuals involved in any type of third-party reproduction, so this would be the gestational carrier, the gestational carrier's partner, you, your potential partner, all those parties need to visit with a counselor to discuss things like disclosure, Mm non-disclosure, how do you tell, who do you tell, when do you tell, what like how does this going to affect people around us? Um, it, it's not meant to be a gatekeeping thing. It's meant to be an informational, making sure we're all on the same planet, <laughs> yeah. type of thing. Because yeah. because you know sometimes when you're sitting around your living room and having these conversations, you're imagining all the wonderful things. Where when you talk to your doctors and to your attorneys, we have to think about sometimes the bad things that happen. And so we 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 want to make sure that everybody is fully aware of, of 
potential repercussions. And that includes the psychological repercussions. And to that end, they also, all those same parties also have screening for infectious disease. And there's a lot of specific tests that we have to do. And there's specific labs where those have to be sent. And generally, if you go through an IVF cycle, if a woman goes through an IVF cycle and she knows she's going to use a gestational carrier, those things kind of have to be done on the front end too. So just make sure you're dealing with a clinic that knows kind of all those ins and outs because there's a lot of real specific details that that people need to know about when they're doing that. Mm -hmm. In choosing a carrier, you want to have somebody who has good access to good quality prenatal care. I mean, you know, picking a carrier who has to drive one to two hours to get to their OB-GYN. Yeah, that's a good point. Probably might not be a great idea. You know, I mean... Again, it's one of those kind of relative type things, but you want you want somebody who has access to good quality prenatal care because mm-hmm. that's going to make a difference. Oh, and one other thing I forgot to add in too, because I actually had a patient who chose a carrier in this position where she'd had an embedded IUD that had to be removed. And an IUD can cause scarring, particularly if it's embedded. So any type of scarring in the cavity, if she's ever had that or had surgery for that or had... I mean, IUDs are okay, but if they're embedded and somebody has to physically go in and take those out surgically, those would probably not be optimal people to use for surrogacy. Thinking about some of the logistics of agency donors, uh, and if you want that, versus an independent journey versus a a previously known donor, those are all three very different categories. Mm -hmm. Agencies will go through and screen the people ahead of time before they're even sent to the clinic. They'll make sure that you're more of a personality match because that's a huge part of it. There's Some people want a very transactional relationship. Other people, they become family. And Mm -hmm. neither is right nor wrong. But if you've got intended parents or IPs who are wanting a transactional relationship and a GC who wants family, they're going to clash horribly Mm -hmm. and everyone's going to feel bad throughout the entire thing. So agencies will help sort through that. And they will also sort through the logistics. On an independent journey, whether it is someone you know or someone you don't, you are doing a lot of the legwork yourself. And that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of legwork that happens, even requesting records. Those can take weeks and weeks to come in and you have to hound places to get all of them. And it's a pain. An agency will do that for you. And and you can do it yourself. Your GC can do it, but uh, it will be a lot more work. When you have an agency, it's going to be a lot more expensive. And an agency is going to be a lot more expensive. expensive. You will pay people for doing that work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with a known GC who's you know a family member, a friend, somebody like that, number one, everybody's got to go through psych. That becomes even more important because that can become more of a gatekeeping because there's more of a potential issue of coercion going on. And so that, that does get much closer scrutiny. Um, when you're doing an independent journey, a lot of times the clinic will keep coming back to you and say, no, I'm sorry, this person isn't appropriate because you're, you're the patient. You don't know what to screen for. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so when we're going through the medical stuff, uh, we're more likely to say no to the independence just because there's more likely to be something that would have gotten screened out um, previously that we're doing the screening for. Um, and there's a lot more to choosing an agency and choosing a, a clinic than just the medical component. It's do you, do you agree with how they approach all these things? Because we are looking at making sure that you and your GC are a good fit medically. You know, the agency is looking at the social. The clinic's not going to look at any of the social stuff. They're not going to run a background check. They're not going to 
run a credit report, those types of things. Um, they're just looking medically. So kind of knowing what you want and what your standards are, are helpful. If you, have, if you want someone who's going to exercise every day, that's different than someone who's not. And knowing that going in is helpful to know what you are really looking for. Yeah, one other thing I would say about agencies, um, I would just make sure that before you give them a bunch of money, talk to the center that you're going to work with, because we've had experience with a lot of these different agencies. And there's definitely, they're not all the same. And Carrie probably does more GC work than the than probably I, my clinic does, but they're not all the same. And some are very good and very thorough. And there's other ones we'd say, gosh, don't use them. We've had a really bad experience with them. So I would talk to the center that where you're going to go through for the surrogacy before before the you know before you do that process um, before you actually give them money and and start process doing things with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, making sure that personality is fit is huge, um, and making sure that a lot of that communication, even about just desires and how you're going to handle the pregnancy. You know, if you have very specific thoughts on termination, make sure your GC shares those thoughts because. You cannot make her do anything. And, mm-hmm. and it's just much easier from the beginning. You have the conversation of if this type of scenario, we're going to do this. If that type of scenario, we're going to do that. And this is some of the stuff that they go through with all the legal conversations because yeah. you need to have these conversations before you have a pregnancy. Yeah. Before yeah. you're in the situation, for sure. Yeah. And be be very careful to get attached to a potential GC until you've made it through all the screening mm-hmm. um, because it, you know, the, the everybody's job is to make sure that this person is safe to carry your baby and everybody takes that really seriously. And it's, it's not ever personal. It's just how can we return this baby to the parents in the best possible condition and return this GC to her children and family in the best possible condition. So there's, there's quite a lot to it. Um, is there anything else that you guys look for in GCs or you kind of keep your eyes open for, ears open for when a couple is coming in to talk to you about a GC? I can't think of anything, but I have a question for you, Carrie, because like Abby said, you you have way more gestational carriers than we do just because of your mm-hmm. international clientele. What would you say to somebody who's thinking about using a gestational carrier in a different country? So they're based in the U.S., so not necessarily another country using a U.S. carrier, but a yeah. U.S. couple using a carrier outside of the U.S. What What is your advice in that situation? We typically do not recommend that because you have no, no recourse to get that child. So and, and you just have less familiarity. So for example, the biggest thing that came up recently is um, there were many patients who had Ukrainian gestational carriers. And then the war broke out. And those women were stuck and those babies were stuck and they were separated. And it, it was awful, awful, awful on so many levels. And so you, you don't necessarily have that control because up until that point, like Ukraine was a very common place. People had a ton of experience getting donors and getting gestational carriers there, but now they're an active war zone. Mm-hmm. And that I have a lot of people who come from, um, whether it's Eastern Europe, whether it's Latin America, South America, um, you know, just places elsewhere, for the most part, we we will not do it at all because there's so much less oversight. And mm-hmm. the horror stories that you hear are just awful. And so and they're true. And and they're true. And they're 
they're true. And so, you know, if you're, I will occasionally have someone who comes who's Australian, for example, or Canadian, and they can't get this person to to be a surrogate for them there, but it's their sister or their best friend or some Mm -hmm. really tight relationship. You know, you might might consider it there, but um, for any any other situation, I would not recommend it because you just you have no idea if you're going to get that baby at the end of the day for a whole host of, of reasons. Yeah, there was a documentary on 60 Minutes, and I think it was a two-part documentary. They followed this couple who had used a surrogate or gestational care in India. And because of COVID in 2020, the borders were shut down. You know, there was a big thing where a lot of people couldn't get to their babies in all different countries because of COVID. And so it's just, you just never know. It's such a such a question mark. That would be kind of scary, I think. Yeah. I mean, we we do work with Canadian surrogates because there's a pretty healthy relationship there between the American and the Canadian uh, clinics and agencies and all that. And mm-hmm. I mean, even with Canada, it's getting medications is not necessarily easy. Getting care mm-hmm. for those surrogates is not easy. The things that I automatically just say, well, of course, we're going to check this lab. Of course, we're going to check this ultrasound. Can't get it. They, they don't do. They can't necessarily get it as easily. And it just, it poses a lot of problems that you would otherwise never think about. And you have to have a lot of cooperation and, you know, technically you can do everything. You should not necessarily do everything just because you can doesn't mean you should. So one last question, Carrie. So if you're working with an agency versus working on your own, can you give it, give our listeners an idea of the timeline from start to finish with a, with an agency versus on your own from start to finish with service. And potential a little bit of a dollar figure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for timeline, um, most agencies right now, I would say most often I'm hearing a year to two years being quoted as the wait for a GC. Many won't even take you until you have embryos made to ensure that you you have embryos ready to go. Um, there are some that can find GCs faster, you know, six months. But right now, because of COVID, that threw so many people's plans into disarray that that the usual six to twelve month wait has now gone out to a closer to a year to two years mm-hmm. because there are just fewer people available to be GCs. So um, if you're doing an independent journey, you may be able to find one a little faster. But part of the reason you may find one a little faster is because she wasn't accepted in any of the agencies. So if you have someone you know who's willing to do it for you, that's that we can usually get going much faster because it usually only takes a couple months to do medical and legal approvals. But um, but if you're waiting for an agency, it'll be a while. And most people aren't fortunate enough to have somebody in their lives who is willing to drop everything and have a baby for you. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to pricing, when you're paying for an agency GC, you're paying both for the agency fees as well as the GC compensation. And you may not necessarily be doing that with an independent journey or a friend who's going with you. Um, and that can be easily a $50,000, $60,000 difference. But there's a lot of stuff that you need to think about that you're going to pay even if you know this person. Things like their health insurance, things like their legal fees, things like babysitting for them if they have to be on bed rest, house cleaning for them, maternity clothes, a life insurance policy. Um, there's all of their medical, everything. Um, there's there's quite a bit of expense. So typically, I would say 120 to 150 thousand is pretty standard when you're working with an agency GC. You might be able to get less than that, or you would be able to get less than that if you don't have to compensate the GC, but 
uh, keep in mind, there's a lot of expense that goes with this. And, and her insurance, the GC's insurance may not automatically cover mm-hmm. a GC pregnancy. So you yes. may be paying for all of those costs out of pocket and have to get her her own policy. And that's, that takes work, that takes expertise. You know, your clinic's going to know a lot of the stuff that you're going to need to do, but they won't necessarily have everything set up for you to say, oh yeah, go to XYZ places. Um, because that's that's a very personal and financially fraught part of this process. So, so it's a big topic. It's a big topic. But um, one that is coming up more and more commonly and one that's very relevant to many of our patients because so many people have either physiologic abnormalities, cancer history, you know, it's a same-sex couple, whatever it may be where they just can't carry their own pregnancy. It's a really helpful thing to be able to do. And it's, um, they're beautiful relationships that form out of this. It's really awesome when it works well. So, all right. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts, and we would love to hear from all of you. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and we're on YouTube. So come say hello. Don't be a stranger. And uh, we can't wait to have you join us next week. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for our Ask the Doc segment. We'd love to hear episode ideas. Um, So let us know what you think and we'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.